and we looked at each other we're like we're not doing that i can make that and she's like well give her a shot that's the voice of luke frisch owner of hazel burr design company and i'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor hey everyone what do you know about shaper tools specifically the shaper origin as a listener to this show, you can try a Shaper Origin risk-free for 30 days in your own shop. That's right, in your own shop. Just by visiting shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand to learn more. The handheld CNC router that has brought digital precision and efficiency of workflow to so many people is yours to try risk-free. Use it to tackle your joinery, your cabinetry, your hardware installations, and more with speed, precision, and the reliability your business needs. If you want to learn more or to give it a risk-free 30-day try, just visit shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand or check the link in the show notes. And now on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Luke Frisch, owner of the Lacrosse, Wisconsin furniture business, Hazel Burr Design Company. After years of working on oil rigs, on the railroad, and playing football, it's pretty clear that Luke has never shied away from a day of hard work. But when he started his own furniture company, he knew that working hard wasn't the only way to succeed. He had to work smart as well and rely on the business lessons that he learned over the years as well as his work ethic to make his company run the way he wanted it to. Follow along as we talk about balancing the building and the artistic side of the furniture business, what you need to know when you work with Live Edge Lumber, how to understand your clients better, and much more. Luke and I covered a lot in this episode, so let's get right into it and hear about his story in his own words. My dad started his career as a home builder, and then he eventually quit doing that before I was even little, but he was always building stuff, making stuff, you know, adding on stuff, just so interested in like how things are built. You can take a stack of wood and make a building out of it. I thought that was like mind-blowing, you know, I was just a little kid. And then in high school, of course, I took shop class uh, along with art class equally that were very important to me i just like the the whole design perspective of the build and the element of being creative so then i kind of you know i went off to college and put that on pause i just played college football and uh then i get out of the real world after college and i spent a year in the oil rig out in north dakota then i worked for the railroad for 10 years but uh we built a house in 2013 and I did a lot of stuff myself because I knew how to do basic things. You know, I had a miter saw, very basic tools. But each project I would do to finish the house, I would buy a couple more tools. You know, that was my excuse. Told my wife that, you know, got if we want this project to be done, I got to get these tools. You know, wink, wink. <laughs> so after that was done, we went to the furniture store. Basically, we had nothing. We, we came from an apartment and we had to furnish a whole home. And we were looking around at this cheaply built, you know, veneer over chipboard furniture. And it was like, it seemed expensive as hell to me, like, you know, three or $4,000 for a dining table. It just seemed chintzy. 
And we looked at each other. We're like, we're not doing that. I can make that. And she's like, well, give her a shot. So I started making things here and there, even cabinetry, which is a little more complicated. But then I started getting into stuff like that. And somebody said, can you make one for me? And I thought to myself, well, sure, I can, I guess, you know. And then that evolved into, well, I'm going to make this thing here. Maybe someone will buy it, you know, make it make a few extra bucks. Because I, I would come home from my railroad off days and have basically seven days to do nothing but, you know, run errands and do stuff around the house. I suppose I could be productive at the time. And then people started texting me and sending me emails saying, hey, I heard you made this for so-and-so. Can you make me one too? But I want it to be a different size. So then that was like the spawning of custom orders. Word of mouth travels fast, you know, especially if you build it for too cheap. So then that turned into, geez, I better just make this a, a thing, make it legit. So I was working out of a single stall garage out of our townhome in Onalaska. And it was, I kicked my wife's van out the door, brought in the table saw, went down to the lumber store. And they got kiln dried walnut maple, all the, all the basic stuff. And I just started building stuff and it, it just evolved into, you know, flying out to Los Angeles and picking out exotic slabs from American wood importers and making huge single slab dining tables and sending them all over the country. I don't know A, B, C, D, E at where I'm at in the alphabet of order of things, but it's just, uh, it's a whirlwind, man. Jumping from building small things in your one car garage to flying all over the country to pick out slabs and build things for people that there that that's a pretty big jump there's definitely some steps in between there that got you from point a to point b or like you said whatever letter of the alphabet you're at right now but you said that word travels fast if you build things for cheap. And that's true. I feel like the biggest factor of being able to go from just small commissions that friends and family are asking to the stage where you are now doing large custom work is the way you price your furniture. Because end of the day, no matter how artistic, no matter how well it's built, no matter all that stuff. The only way to stay in business is to have a business and to have a business is to sell things and to make a profit. And you can start out your company as somebody who's building a lot of things for a cheap price. And that's how people gravitate towards you. But that's not a way to sustainably run your company. So let's just jump right in the deep end and start talking about pricing right off the bat and how you moved from making things too cheap to now pricing things appropriately to have a sustainable business. Yeah. Pricing is very, it's very difficult to figure out without guidance. I mean, I had nobody telling me, Hey, you're supposed to do price materials plus labor at this much per hour plus 20%. And then that's your final sale price. Um, because I was just doing it like on the side, you know, I had my, my income came from uh, my job with the railroad. So it wasn't a concern for me to, you know, we got to be at this margin. We got to make this much profit per month. That wasn't a concern of mine. I would just take a few extra bucks and go buy 500 bucks worth of lumber and build something cool. And then just hope, hopefully just make a few bucks. It wasn't a big deal. But then when I decided to start taking it seriously, and it's very strange, if you see things on 
like Instagram or Facebook and you you're like, I can make that. I wonder how much that costs. Cause you know, most, most of the big items are please call for details. They're not going to put a price tag on a $6,000 dining table. Cause then it's, it scares people away usually. So I would reach out to these people and you get very mixed answers um, depending on who they are, where they're at. If they think you're a threat to them somehow, like if you're going to steal their business, you just ask for pricing info. Um, and I wasn't pretending to be like a buyer. I was like, Hey man, I make furniture too. Just curious as to what the price of this table is. And some people um, were very open and honest. They're like, Hey, here's how I do it. No problem. Good luck to you. And some people are like, why do you need to know? And I'm like, you know, it's just very strange. It's very mixed. And whenever people ask me about how I price my stuff, I'm very open and honest. And I try to be helpful just to, give people a little bit of advice. So the industry is kind of a double-edged sword because one, it's a really big industry. There's a lot of people out there making furniture because there's a lot of people who need furniture. There's a lot of people who need to furnish their homes, whether it's residential or commercial. But at the same time, it's people's business. It's a small industry because it's how people are making their money. They're supporting their family. They're supporting themselves. They're supporting their company making furniture. So there's that balance of wanting to share all your trade secrets, but at the same time, wanting to keep it very buttoned up and to yourself. And for you, why do you feel like the industry is big enough for you to be able to be open with your pricing, open with competitors and share that knowledge instead of keeping it to yourself? Well, for one, I think if people know your pricing and they know you're, you have a viable business, the model is obviously working because otherwise you wouldn't be functioning. So if, if they're going to reach out to you, it's better to be honest and open because if they're trying to be cheaper than you, they're just going to run themselves into the ground. But if they see your price as a, as a, as a good thing, like I could make that much money too, you're actually setting the market that way. It's not like you're going to try to undercut each other down to the point of making a penny per, per board foot on profit. You know, it's, it's like more of a, okay, here's what it costs. Here's what my time's worth. Um, the price of materials are this much. So you can only go so low before you're just, you know, you're going to, you're just going to fizzle out. You know what I mean? There's that idea that if everybody joins together and is making furniture in the same pricing realm, then price gets taken out of it and it becomes a level playing field. And it's just based on the merit of your design or the merit of how you run your company or your customer service instead of the baseline of just pricing. How cheap can you go? So I definitely see what you're saying and how, yes, giving your competition that edge of knowing how you're running your business could be a bad thing, but it could also be a good thing because then your competition is at the same level as you and it's a level playing field. Correct. Yeah. Then it comes down to, yeah, quality of the build, the uniqueness of your design, you know, the, the more important things take hold then if, if pricing isn't an issue. The actual market itself will, will determine whether you have a viable product instead of someone's opinion on what it should cost, you know. You run your own shop. You are a small yeah. shop that you're running. There's nothing wrong with having 
that smaller shop and not wanting to scale up to having a lot of employees or not wanting to have other people in the shop working with you. For you, as your company continues to grow, do you have plans of expanding? I know you have one part-time employee right now, but do you have plans of expanding to more employees to a larger shop? I've thought about it a few times. Um, there's a lot of things that come into play. You know, if you start, if you start an actual S corp or corporation, you, and you want to actually provide employment opportunities for other people and have full-time workers in your shop, there's, there's a whole bunch of things to think about. You know, I'm, I've got a, luckily I've got a lot of friends here locally who are business owners. So I always bounce, they're not in my industry, but it's very equitable to all the headaches that come with, you know, you got to provide different types of liability insurance for them, workman's comp. You got to start doing all this other, basically you have to be human resources manager. If you don't hire one, you have to be one. So then there's the headache of if you employ somebody full-time, you're making a commitment to them just as they're making a commitment to you. So then it becomes down to reasonable expectations. And I, that's a whole headache that I, I haven't really committed to entertaining yet, but I've thought about it. You know, they say one man can do the work of one man, but two men can do the work of four. And it's very true moving these big slabs around and just delivering furniture Sometimes I got to call up my buddy, Aaron, to come help me. He's always helpful. He's a salesman, so he's very flexible in his time. But it's difficult once you cross that bridge, you know, there's a whole bunch of factors to think about. But yeah, as far as the shop goes, I've got a 35 by 75 pole barn down the hill from my house. And I'm working on getting a couple storage containers down here to get a lot of my supplies and stuff out of here and make it more, more workspace, less, less uh, storage for materials and whatnot. But I don't really plan on moving into a different space anytime soon. A lot of my pre-made stuff that I, I make, I've got a couple of retail spaces here in town that um, sell my things. I'm pretty sure if I needed to, I could add on to my shop here, but getting a Newer, bigger ones someday is really not in the plans. But years ago, if you were to ask me if I would have had a furniture business and a pole barn and all this stuff, I would, I would have told you you're crazy. <laughs> so who knows? I want to get into how you work with customers and, and that process. But I want to continue what you were saying about the stores that you work with, that you have your furniture that you're building in your own style in your own design that you're out there selling. So it's not really custom, but it's not really a collection of furniture. It's kind of one-off pieces, but you're selling them in a retail environment. So can you talk on that aspect of your business where you deal with stores and you sell through stores, how that started and how you go about selling through these stores? Yeah. So uh, basically it all stems from social media. So the pandemic brought to light a whole bunch of things. Um, Your regular retail stores were greatly affected by everything. So obviously evolution drives the market. So people had some really good ideas. There's a couple that popped up here. I'm sure it's the same up by you that 
they opened up a retail space and they only sold locally made goods. So, you know, there's a local lady that makes macrame. There's a few local candle makers, basically handmade crafts and whatnot. And they reach out and they're like, well, who do you know locally that makes anything else? And one person will give another name, you know, then pretty soon they have a whole store stocked and ready, full of locally made goods. And it provides a retail outlet for people that who might not otherwise have an opportunity to sell their things to in that, in a, in a space. Cause I mean, who can afford to rent for a, a viable retail space and then, you know, still be able to, you know, go home and make your stuff. So they, a couple reached out to me in the last two years and it's been really good. What I do is I say, well, what would you, what would you be interested in selling here? And you know, they'll tell me like, well, you can put one big table and how about a bunch of charcuterie boards and maybe some small tables. So then I'll get together a little design package for them. Like, you know, like one lady only likes mid-century style stuff. And the other one says, just get creative, you know? So what I'll do is make the thing that I've, that's been itching to get out of my brain. Usually it's some sort of some sort of thing that I've thought of that would be cool, but I've never seen one before. And then, but it has to be a functional piece. You know, it has to conform to normal size um, dimensions just to be marketable, you know? So like an end table, you don't want a 36 inch high end table. So we'll make it 22, but then you can get creative with how it's built. And that's when my brain works in weird ways. I guess I'll think of something, but you know, only creating custom orders doesn't give me an outlet to actually make those things because I can draw it up on a piece of paper, but you know, that's not going to make somebody want to purchase it, but seeing it in person works too. But what's really cool about these retail spaces is that you, someone will see something that you made, you know, I've got my business cards there at the stores and they'll I'll get an email and they'll say, Hey, I saw this little cool table at uh, the store, but what I would really like to do is have you make it with a different wood or maybe make it a little bit longer or a different size so that not only do I sell a few things in those stores, but it generates a lot of custom orders, which is really nice because it's basically free advertising so that it works very well in a couple different ways. You're using your retail space as a real life portfolio. You said that it started through social media, like a lot of stuff does right now. And your portfolio can be viewed through social media, through your channels, and also through your website. But there's a difference between seeing something on your computer and seeing something in real life. And you're appealing to a local market that can actually come and see your things, then that retail space is your portfolio. It's your showroom. It's basically your custom order form where you say, these are the things that I can build. You can extrapolate on it from there. So that is the way you're getting these customers. Now let's step away from the retail space and talk about your customers. And when somebody reaches out by phone or through your website, how does that interaction go? What is a what does it look like when you're dealing with your customers and how do you take it from that first contact to the final sale? Um, so it works in a couple different ways. Um, I've got my Instagram and my Instagram has a link to my website 
So basically, if, if someone finds my Instagram, you know, it's got a, a running timeline portfolio of a lot of my builds. So they'll see my, they'll see all the goods before they go to my website. Then they click on my website. It shows a few different other builds. And then it's it's got a little story about me. And then it's got a contact form submission, which people will fill out with their name, email, phone number, and then like what questions they have for me or what they want me to build or give me a give them a quote for. And that sends me an email. And usually at night when I read my emails, I'll have at least, you know, one or two contact form submissions per day, which sometimes it's just an inquiry. Sometimes it's a, Hey, I really like your stuff. Can you do this and this? Or sometimes I get direct messages on my Facebook page. Um, sometimes I get texts or phone calls and Basically, how that process usually goes is I'll tell them, I'll give them a quote or an estimate. And then if they um, agree to the terms that we talked about in the uh, in the agreement, then I'll usually take a down payment and put them in the queue. And whatever I think I can get it done, um, I usually add a week or two on just give myself a little wiggle room because your reputation is really built on, you know, your interaction with the customer. Like if they, if you say it's going to be done on the 20th and it's not done till the 28th, it's usually due to things that are beyond your control, like material availability or giving yourself a little grace in your estimating time is always good too. And then giving yourself a little grace in uh, pricing is good too. You know, adding 10% to an estimate. And then if you come in below your estimate, it really makes them smile. So that's always good to give yourself some wiggle room to uh, maintain your, you know, your customer relations. The details, although sometimes they can be glossed over, they are what matter. They're what can either help you or if you ignore them, they can hurt you. So your agreement, you said, if you and the client agree on the agreement, then you move forward. What does that agreement look like? What have you put in place over the years to protect yourself, to protect your business and to educate the client on what they can expect? Because we always talk about as business owners that we want to protect ourselves and we want to protect our business. And yes, I'm all for that. But I also know that having an educated client and somebody who knows exactly what they can expect when they can expect it goes a long way in helping to protect your business as well. Yeah. Um, reasonable expectations are subjective, as you know. It comes down to, and I, I treat each client differently based on their knowledge set, based on their expectations. Um, based on the actual item itself, I give out these care cards and they have very simple instructions on how to take care of them. Just so, you know, if someone leaves, if someone leaves a big butcher block out and they soak it in water and it warps and they're, they're thinking that they did nothing wrong. And it was the actual build of the, of the item that was the defective part of the warping process. Well, I put that in my cards too. So they know upfront um, how to care for the item. 
um, or even like a dining table. I have a catalyzed urethane finish that I use on. It's very durable. It's uh, pretty scratch proof, but I said nothing's 100% scratch proof. So please use coasters and care for the item as if it would scratch easily. Then they know how to care for it too. I can usually gauge customers' knowledge of how to or what their expectation is as far as how to care for the item just based on what knowledge they would have on the other parts of the project. Like, you know, if they even know what, um, like a wax or oil would do, or if they know what a urethane would do in certain conditions. So I guess it's based on each customer. Talking about individuality with your customers, but now moving it back to your furniture, you do a lot of live edge work and there's a beauty in that, but there's also a frustration because you can make a piece, you can photograph it, and then you can put it out there and say, here is a live edge X table in this design. This is what I built for a client. And then another client comes along and says, that's what I want. And you have to then do the dance of explaining that this is a live edge piece of furniture from a real tree. And it's live edge because it was once alive and I can't control what the next one looks like. So how do you talk with your clients and explain that every piece that you make isn't going to be the same? And, and this could go back to managing their expectations, but explaining that what they saw in the picture isn't going to be exactly what they get. Yeah. So that's, that's very common. That is the most common thing is someone sees something that I made for a client and they're like, I want that. Then the, you know, the normal questions come about, but I have a simple copy and paste response in my brain every time I get that. And it's this, I say, thank you for your interest. This was a custom piece and and it's very unique. Is there a live edge slab out of a tree? And then I'll say, we have dozens of other slabs in stock. Would you like to come and see our inventory if you're local to the area? And then they usually respond, yes, I'd love to stop by and see what you have in stock. Or they're just like, I wanted that one. And they don't respond, (laughs) you know? So it's, it's, uh, it's, I don't know of a better way to respond to that question than that. It seems to have worked in the past. And sometimes, because I usually, I try to have five or six tables finished in a detached building here on our property, just to have something to show them um, that they can put their hands on and feel and then if they see a certain type of wood that that's finished that they like, I'll say, well, here's this pile of slabs and that type of wood. And it'll have a very similar green and color pattern as the ones up there. But obviously each page is unique. Most people that are in the market for a big single slab live edge table, they usually already know the pricing and how it's going to be when it's finished typically. But if they really don't have a clue at all, sometimes their jaws drop when they see how much those these big slabs cost. But most of the time they, they have a pretty good idea. The idea of customer service and the idea of working with a client and understanding a client, not only what they want, but also what they might need, because your job as a furniture maker is yes, to fulfill the hopes and dreams of the clients that are coming to you, but also to understand their needs, because there can be a disconnect between what somebody wants and what they say they want or a picture that they show you and their 
actual needs, how it's going to hold up in the space that they're going to put it in, or if it's actually going to function the way they want it, or even their price. They There could be clients whose eyes are bigger than their budget. And so there's always that balance you need to play between yourself and your customer. You seem to have a pretty good handle on it. And that comes with doing this for many years, for having a lot of clients, for experiencing it, and the way that you think about your business and how you want to approach clients. So how have you developed that customer service and that understanding of what a client wants and what they need? And how do you explain that to a client when they're coming to you for a piece? Well, um, to be honest with you, um, most of my orders, I would say probably 60% of my orders are local um, within 100 miles of my area here in La Crosse. And most of my business is generated by word of mouth, you know, friend of a friend. You know, I saw your table at so-and-so's house when we were over there for dinner. I would really like to order one for for ourselves. So typically they've already seen the quality of my build and the finish I use and the type of wood. So they already have the hands-on knowledge of what it feels like, what it looks like in person. And then it's a matter of usually figuring out like size. So a lot of people have for dining tables, especially they have their, you know, predisposition as like what size table would fit in my space. And then I have a, a rule of thumb. I like to have 36 inches away from the wall on all sides of the table minimum. And, you know, if you're, they might not know what they need, if they could, if they could get a little bit bigger table or if they need a little bit smaller table than their old one, or if they're moving into a new space, they can show me, you know, their, the size of the, their room. And I can usually make a decent estimation of what would be best fit for that space. It's a lot of it has to do with functionality. So some types of bases of dining tables have really cool design to them, but they're not really functional as far as like fitting chairs next to the table. So I usually have a pretty good idea of, Hey, maybe we should do this type of, since you only, you're not going to sit on the ends and just the sides. And a lot of people, they have thoughts about sheens of finish, you know, like a matte or a more, more of a glossy finish. And I usually try to recommend a more of a matte finish if, there, if it's in a very sun exposed room with big windows. Um, Cause we don't want that table to give off a bunch of glare. So once I usually give those little nuggets of, knowledge and insight to the clients, they kind of have the light bulb go off in their head and they're like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. We'll just do this and this. And they'll, it's more of a coming to grips with they're conceding a little bit of a little bit of the decision-making to me, which um, it's kind of scary sometimes because it's very, every, you know, everything's subjective as far as preference. But if you say it to them the, the correct way, it's almost as if it was their idea the whole time. And that really gives them a better peace of mind, I guess, moving forward with the, the whole process. Let's take a step outside of the shop and outside of the client interaction and move over to the lumber yard and to sourcing wood and to sourcing specifically live edge, because that is something that you are known for. You said you have a lot of slabs in your 
space. And that means that you've over the years developed an understanding of that material. But it can be challenging for somebody who is new to the idea of live edge slabs going from plywood or veneer to something that has the the characteristics of solid wood and the movement and the dryness factor and all the things that go into selecting a good piece of wood to work with that is going to work well not only with design but also function well for your client so when you're looking for a slab what really stands out to you for quality and something that you want to work with? Um, hmm. So there's a lot of things to look at. The biggest, the biggest detail to look at when you're looking at um, slabs is the moisture content, because as you just said, it's living, but it's still living long past the tree falls down because wood is always changing seasonally with moisture content. And if you're above 9, 10, 11% moisture, you're looking for trouble um, down the road. So the worst thing you can have is a callback. And I've had them because sometimes, you know, wood behaves in strange ways, whether it be moisture content, maybe, maybe the people have a really dry home. And in the wintertime, two years later, it might crack or the epoxy, you know, epoxy is a nightmare anyways, but sometimes the epoxy separates from the wood. Um, but I always make my best effort to tell them, Hey, here's the risks. I try to inlay, um, uh, either C channel or angle iron in the bottom of the table to give it a little more stability and long-term structure, but the incorporating the right type of base always helps to support the table. So it doesn't cup or warp or twist over time, but sometimes there's really nothing you can do. I also like to get slabs that have already been de-stressed. So if there's a big crack in the slab, that's usually a good sign that the slab isn't very stressed anymore. You can usually stitch them with cool bow ties or you can fill them with epoxy. Uh, there's a lot of options there. Um, and then it's very important to have your slab very flat. You know, sending it through a wide belt sander doesn't do it. You have to actually have it milled down with some type of flattening mill, either like a, like a Lucas mill or a, uh, the wood, a wood whiz. There's a lot of different ways to do it. You can even plan it by hand if you got the time, but those are the big things really with the, these big live edge slabs. And they're, you know, sometimes, I don't know, they're, it's, it's a live animal. They're kind of unpredictable sometimes. It is a live animal. I like that idea of picturing, you know, you going out to the shop and, with your lion tamer outfit on and uh, taming all your slabs as, as clients come in, you know, stay yeah. away, stay away from that one. It's, it's still fresh. Yeah. Or you got to whisper to him. Okay. Now, buddy, you better behave. <laughs> Along the lines of, of slabs and solid wood. I know that locally sourcing your wood is important to you. And I know that also you do exotic wood pieces and sourcing those in a sustainable way is also important to you. So can you touch on the idea of local sustainability in your lumber and also how you go about 
sourcing exotic things, but still stay in that same mindset? Yeah. So that's a very, that's a very, very, very important thing. So the local lumber I get, the best thing you can possibly do to have a good local lumber source is make friends with a tree service. I don't care if you're in North Dakota or Iowa, or if you're in Montana or New York or Georgia, there are tree service companies everywhere. And if you simply introduce, because most of these tree services, they will take a 20 or 30 inch good solid log and they will chip it. And they don't even, they don't care. They'll just send it through the chipper. They got, they got these huge diesel chippers and they'll just make piles of wood chips and then they sell it for mulch, which I think is terrible. But if you make friends with these tree service guys and you say, Hey, I build furniture. If you guys have any logs, if you have the space to keep it, obviously, if you have any logs, please just drop them off or get, at least give me the opportunity to have the log instead of send it through the chipper. Um, so I did that and I've, I, I get logs dropped off every couple of weeks, I would bet. And they're usually some really good stuff and they, they don't have the time or the resources to mill them, to dry them, to basically process them into lumber. So, and then, you know, there's always guys on Facebook marketplace or Craigslist advertising mobile sawmill service. And every, I don't know, six months or so we'll have either they'll pick them up and they'll saw them into slabs or there's a, a mobile guy. He's pretty hard to get, but he'll show up and he'll mill, you know, six, seven, eight logs I have sitting here and we'll stick them, we'll stack them and then they'll air, air dry for a year or so. And I'm in the process of designing a solar kiln. I know there's a lot of good ones out there, but I think it's about 90 days to dry a whole solar kiln full of wood. And all you need is a couple box fans. That's very simple stuff. There's a bunch of recipes online to build one of those guys, but that's easy way to get good lumber. And, you know, it's sustainable too, because, you know, trees come down for a number of reasons, but mostly tree services will take trees out of, out of people's yards or if they're new power lines or whatever. So there's always a source there. And then my exotic timbers, they all come from Costa Rica and there's very, very strict harvesting laws down there. So most of my trees, they're all from American wood importers. You should look them up. They got a great um, Instagram and Facebook page and they are fallen timbers. They're not cut because in Costa Rica, they have uh, the rainforest is very cared for down there. So they don't, they don't let people come in and just, you know, empty the forest. They'll, that there's very strict laws there. So it's a, it's a win-win either way, because if those trees were to just lay in the rainforest floor and rot, that'd be a shame, but they slice them up and they kill and dry them down there and then they ship them up here. So it's pretty good, pretty good balance of the ecosystem. In the beginning of this interview, when you were talking about when you were younger and you were in school, you talked about how important both shop class, the technical building side of furniture was to you, but also art class and that creative outlet. And that line of both of those things has definitely followed you through your career to now. When you're thinking about a new piece of furniture, and let's talk about pieces for a client, because when you're doing your own pieces for your portfolio or for the stores, you can take it anywhere you want to go. But when you're making a concept for a client, and let's pick a client that, say, comes to you and says, 
I want a live edge table, but that's it. They don't have any other stipulations in there. They don't have any other design ideas. What goes through your mind in the designing process? Yes, it needs to follow conventional table wisdom and building practices, but when you're thinking about that design, let's get into your brain and think about how you're creating that and putting that down on paper. Well, one thing, so speaking of the art class thing in uh, high school, I had a very, very brilliant teacher. And, you know, we had a bunch of those light bulb moments go off that you never forget. And, it, you know, it ties your feelings in, into actual numbers, which, you know, like the Fibonacci sequence is, you know, the three, six, nine, twelve, and the ratios there that you don't understand you don't understand why you like something, but you like it basically how the universe works. And then you have the three point perspective. So when you draw things in three point perspective, you know, like if you draw a cube and then if you draw a smaller cube down the road, you can put the three point perspective law into anything. And it, it goes into how things look from a certain point of view. So if they don't know how those things work, but they know what they like and they know what they don't like, it's kind of like you can you can get into their their thought process, and then you can you can actually show them show them something that you know that they like, but they know they don't even know why they like it. A very boring straight edge slab compared to like an hourglass shaped beautiful, you know. Guanacaste piece with bright sapwood compared to, you know, something like a regular oak dining table at the, you know, from 50 years ago. There's a big difference there. Both are solid, both are functional, but one is way more attracted to the human eye than the other. And understanding what makes that happen is kind of the secret sauce, you know. The secret sauce. Yep. You were building things for your house and then it became word of mouth with family and friends and it started with smaller things and then it grew to bigger things and then it grew to clients and it grew to where it is today. And that that story is, is yes, unique to you, but it's also a process that in some way, shape or form, a lot of furniture makers have taken that similar journey where they develop the love for building out of their own necessity to build stuff for themselves, but it grew beyond that. There are people who are looking to get into building a furniture company, and they could be at any one of the points along the road that you took. And there's also people who are at the end of the road, at the point where you are now, but they feel like there is more horizon to go and they're not sure how to get there. So for people listening and hearing about how you run your company and how you've grown it over the years from where it started to the success you're having now, what's some advice that you could share with these people that worked for you that 
could hopefully work for them in their own companies? Um, well, the best advice is to always take advice. I always, I, I always like to seek advice from people and get perspective from people that are further along in their journey than me. So I've got a couple of friends that are local business owners here. You know, they run multi-million dollar companies. They have dozens of, or more employees. And I ask them, hey, here's my issue. What do you think? And then actually listen to them, you know, seek advice, not expecting, seek advice objectively. So don't expect a certain answer subjectively. Be open-minded. Basically, getting perspective from people with more knowledge in that field is helpful. So like in the, in the realm of running a business, I like, even if it doesn't equate to your industry, I like to ask those with more experience and more, more time in their field and like actually take it into practice. Even if you might disagree with their methods, you know, it must work because they are where they are for a reason. So just use other people's as a resource. I love bouncing ideas off of people with that are, you know, way further, way, way further down the road in their journey of being business owners. And I know a lot of people don't have that resource because you might not even know anybody who run, runs their own business, but you know, there's always the interwebs a great deal too, because uh, basically a lot of my stuff I've learned it's off of YouTube. Um, it's really weird. You can almost find anything on there. It's such a great resource. Um, you know, I never knew what a domino joint was up until like four years ago. And I, I was like, wow, mortise and tenon is way easier now with this tool. You know, dropping $1,500 on a hand tool isn't always, um, isn't always easy to do. But the way it changed the way I build stuff is insane. And I never would have known about that, but I saw that and I was like, it changed my whole, I was like, well, I can build anything now, you know, anything I can draw, I can build, you know, if you're not screwing two pieces of wood together, it was kind of hard to imagine how do I make that joint, you know, making a cool table base or something like that. But yeah, just tapping into all the resources available, I think is the key. You now are one of those resources. You've added your knowledge and shared it with everybody listening and I want to thank you for, for doing that, for your time and for sharing what you've learned through your company's journey with the community. And I really wish you the best of success moving forward in what you're doing. And I hope it continues to bring you joy. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. Thanks for your time as well. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.